You can get angry and get into a fist fight, but you don't get anywhere by doing that. But you get a lot done when you educate properly and you give him information and you show compassion and understanding. Jose Ramirez Jr. is the author of the memoir Squint, My Journey with Leprosy, which leads readers through the mystery illness that took over his life as a teenager in the 1960s, his diagnosis at age 20, and the years he spent at the only hospital for people with leprosy, or Hansen's disease, in the United States. Carville, as the facility was called, housed hundreds of patients with Hansen's, but it was far more than a hospital. It was a fully contained world with churches, recreational sports fields, libraries, a bank, a post office, and a cemetery. But this world was incredibly isolating and often demeaning, leading many of the patients of all ages and races to form supportive communities within its barbed wire walls. After his discharge, Jose traveled the world as a social worker and advocate for people with Hansen's disease and has held leadership positions in many advocacy groups, including the American Leprosy Mission and IDEA, an international organization of people affected by leprosy. Because new cases have been discovered in Florida and the media, stand-up comics, memes, and quippy tweets have yet again been contributing to damaging misinformation, Jose will share his devastating and uplifting journey as he talks with us about the misunderstandings around this sensationalized, mythic, biblical disease that 97% of people are naturally immune to and can now be cured quickly with the right medication. Nonetheless, the word still evokes an almost ancient fear in those who hear it. Leprosy. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. I am so excited to be joined by you today, Jose. I feel so honored that you're willing to talk to me and to our audience. Uh, And I feel like you have a lot to educate us on today and so much to tell us about your life. Oh, well, I'm glad to be here and uh, to help you dispel some of the myths that obviously people out in the community have. Yeah, that's definitely true. Uh, And I think, as we'll get into, we've seen some of these cases rising in Florida, which really made me want to get some information out there as quick as possible. So thank you for being willing to get on this call. So before we get into your life story, which I got to read about in your memoir, uh, it was so interesting. And I'll tell you, I was definitely crying throughout a lot of it. But before we get into your story, I would love to start just by dispelling some of the big myths around Hansen's disease, which is also called leprosy, but no longer quite so much. So let's start with the biggest myth that you feel like you want to change. Well, to to begin with is that, you know, people think that it is biblical in sense, that it is highly communicable, that it is uh, hereditary that people, all they have to do is to be able to be in the same room with someone who has or has had the disease and that they'll catch it. I also want to be able to point out the fact that 
fingers do not fall off and noses do not fall off. It just has to do with the deterioration of, of the nose that uh, causes uh, a lot of disabilities. So those are some of the things I want to be able to get across to your listeners. I think that those are the most important things to talk about, and I'm sure we'll be talking about more of these myths as they go along. Um, So I would love to start talking about your experience. Um, You spent quite a few years living at Carville, which was the only hospital for people who have Hansen's disease that actually existed within the United States. So let's start with before you actually got to Carville, how did you discover that you had Hansen's disease? Because I know that was a very long process. Well, it was a long journey that uh, I and my family went through. I I recall being sick since I was in uh, my early teens I would have fevers that would go away. I would have blisters that would go away. I would have a lot of pain in my elbows and that would go away. I would have a lot of swelling in my hands and my feet and then eventually would go away. So my parents uh, would take me to different doctors. In fact, they took me to every doctor in Laredo. That's where my hometown is, Laredo, Texas. And uh, they took me to dermatologists in San Antonio. They took me to folk healers. Uh, they took me to uh, curanderos, uh, spiritualists, and no one was able to figure out what it was. Uh, not until my parents took me to a folk healer in Monterey, Mexico, an elderly gentleman. Yes, I, we, we walked into his small house full of herbs, and um, I was in my pajamas because everything hurt back then. Any kind of pressure on my body hurt. So I walked in and he asked me to uh, lower my pajamas. He saw my legs and my hands and my face. And he said that he couldn't do anything, uh, that it was a disease of the Bible. So uh, my parents and I were just flabbergasted. We didn't know what he was talking about. We thought it was a riddle and he didn't elaborate. Anyway, we went back to Laredo, and by then, uh, I had had to stop attending the Laredo Junior College, and uh, I could not no longer go out with Magdalena. I was just basically bedridden, and uh, my mother would uh, basically take care of me by putting a, a very light sheet over me. She knew that uh, the blisters uh, were bloody. And she knew that I was in pain and and she could not do anything about it. Nevertheless, one of my sisters who was an LVN persuaded me to go to the hospital because she had persuaded three different doctors to uh, combine their efforts and try to figure out what I had. So I did go into the local hospital. They started doing all kinds of exams. Finally, one of them did a biopsy on one of the, the blisters sent it to Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, and within 24 hours, the response came back on on my diagnosis. So it's a long journey. And um, within 24 hours after that, there was a director of the health department from Austin, the Texas Health Department. Uh, The gentleman came in and made sure that I was isolated. 
and um, told everyone, including me, that I needed to be hospitalized. Uh, I did not know that it was a leprosorium, but I needed to be hospitalized. I could not stay in the state of Texas because the only uh, way I could stay there was to be treated. And, of course, there was no treatment at the time. So within a very short period of time, I was on my way to Carville, Louisiana, to small town just south of Baton Rouge and it's an isolated uh, facility that's been there since 1894. Uh, it's got one road in, one road out. It's uh, surrounded by swamps. Uh, the Mississippi River kind of meanders around so it's like a facsimile of a, of a lake. It had uh, high cyclone fences and a guard tower and guards uh, at the front gate. So I was very isolated and that was the, the intent for anyone with a disease uh, had to go there. And you're talking about Florida. I found out uh, very quickly that Florida, Louisiana, Texas, Arizona, New York are all endemic states. And Part of it is because of the, the weather, the heat, and some of it is also because of migration of people coming in from the south. So you talk a lot about your family in your book, and you also talk a lot about your girlfriend, who's now your wife. Um, they went through all of this with you. So when you were first diagnosed, how did your family and your girlfriend and your friends, how did your community react to such uh, inflammatory diagnosis that they'd probably never heard of before outside of biblical stories. Well, I have six brothers and six sisters, and I've spoken to all of them individually, and they all thought I was going to die. They all went to the dictionary back then. You know, you didn't really have Google. You didn't have anything else that technology is today. They went to the dictionary. And found out uh, what it was and uh, found out a little bit about the hospital in Louisiana. Uh, my mother was devastated. Uh, she cried and uh, went to church. She was a very devout Catholic and went up to the altar. I was told by my siblings and, and cursed, you know, the, uh, the God and saying, why is it that you're punishing my son for my sins? Because back then, even my mom believed that a person would end up with a disease because of some sinful act that they had uh, committed. So uh, Magdalena also went home. She told me and cried and told her mother and um, her family also was devastated. Very quickly, my, my friends found out and they were very supportive. They wanted to come and visit me, but I was at the hospital for a very short period of time before I was actually sent to Carville. And uh, my parents uh, received help from the Daughters of, uh, of Mercy, who owned the hospital, Mercy Hospital, and they were able to pay for the trip for me to be transported to Carville. And uh, anyway, my parents thought that they should invite Magdalena, and she went with me. She went inside the ambulance. I thought it was a, an ambulance, but later on I found that it was a hearse. And the reason that it was a hearse is because my parents tried to contact with the owners of ambulance uh, services, and 
once uh, the owner found out what um, the trip was and who I was and what my diagnosis was, he told my parents that ambulances were for the living and verses were for the dead. So symbolically, I was already declared dead. And it was a long, long trip. There were no expressways back then. So my sister, who was an LDN, kept giving me morphine shots as we traveled uh, throughout Texas and eventually into Louisiana. So it was a, a very rapid diagnosis and a very rapid trip. When my, my siblings uh, say that uh, they saw me as I was taken, put in a stretcher and put into the, the, the hearse, they thought that I was going to die and it became even worse when they saw a priest uh, giving me the last rites right as I entered the hearse. So there's a lot of symbolism, you know, with the disease. And uh, I did not know where I was going. I really didn't care. All I wanted was to stop the pain. The name of the disease really didn't register with me. I was um, so despondent uh, and in so much pain, and I had given up on doctors and medicine. But the presence of Magdalena holding my hand gave me hope. And, of course, my mom traveled uh, with a rosary, and she prayed the, the rosary the, the whole trip. And um, I, I remember the, the trip very clearly, especially as we crossed the, the Texas-Louisiana uh, border. There's a huge bridge in Lake Charles, about 50 miles into Louisiana. And um, as we climbed up there, it seems as if it was climbing into heaven because uh, the climb never seemed to stop. It would just keep climbing and climbing. And then it went down. And all I could think of going down was purgatory. I can imagine why you would think that. I mean, your family was so religious. And I'm interested to, just before we get into what Carville was like, I think it's really important, this idea that the way that most people learn about what's called leprosy is stories from the Bible. And just for a little history lesson, how was it that people who were diagnosed with Hansen's disease or people that that even the religious authorities believed to have leprosy, whether they did or didn't, what was the general treatment of people in the days when this disease was so deeply misunderstood, you know, back hundreds of years even? Well, the the book of Leviticus uh, talks about the disease. It's the only disease mentioned in the Bible. And it talks about Aaron the priest, who is the one designated to make the diagnosis. And he came up with uh, what I call the Ten Commandments for people with leprosy and basically said, no one with a disease could live in the in the common community drink from a public fountain, marry someone other than someone with a disease, enter a a public uh, building, travel a public road. All these things were so negative. And and people, regardless of their religious faith, when they go into their respective Bibles, the Torah, they know that and they hear it. 
from their, you know, religious leaders and without even knowing anything about it, it's just something that is uh, very negative and people are being banished uh, away from the community or declared uh, dead. You can no longer live in the manner that other people live. So keeping in mind also that uh, I found out that as people entered Carville, they were urged to change their names in order to protect their, their families. So in essence, uh, it was losing one's identity in contemporary times. So all this history, all this imagery that has uh, been portrayed in the movies, in Ben-Hur, the Ten Commandments, all of those things, uh, are, you know, people hear about. And then you have comics nowadays that whenever they hear about the disease, which is going on right now, they make these horrible jokes uh, about the disease that uh, only prostitutes uh, will be able to pass that disease on to others. When in reality, it has nothing to do with uh, sexual activity. So anyway, there's a, a long history that is tied into that. Uh, stigma, to me, is an act of labeling, rejection, or unexplained fear of a person. You fear someone without even knowing what it is. And you reject, and then you label. So you come up with a terminology that is used in the Bible, because Bible doesn't use necessarily the word leprosy. It uses a five-letter word. Mm-hmm. I am very offended by people who immediately start talking about, you know, the disease using that terminology. And the imagery immediately, you know, comes into one's brain and it, it flourishes after that. And people cannot get away from it. So I say the L word. People learn very early in, in life about the disease and, and the terminology that is associated with it. So, yes, uh, it has a lot of history. But even now, people are saying, what? There's leprosy in the United States? I thought that was gone forever. And I mean, it was reading your book and reading about this disease that really taught me the offensiveness of the five-letter word, the L word, as you call it. I am certain that many of our listeners, myself and, and, and myself, have used that word at different times before we've learned the reality, the humanity of this disease. And so I'm so appreciative to learn that from you. And I hope that that's a big thing that our listeners take away. Because of course, I've been seeing, as you mentioned, so many jokes are flying, using that word and using these offensive stereotypes that I don't think I even would have noticed had I not really started to dive into this. So I'm just so glad that we can work through that on the show together, because I want to make sure that people really understand that. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. 
Factor will provide you with delicious, never frozen, ready to eat gourmet meals that are chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American and Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. And now, back to the show. So now let's go into your experience at Carville. So, you know, you're arriving in a hearse, right? I mean, that's a very intense beginning, whether you knew it or not. You knew there was a priest, you knew your family was crying, and you're showing up on these grounds. And I think when people think of, and again, we don't want to use the word, another thing I learned from you, we don't want to use the term colony, right? We would like to use the term, is hospital what you prefer? What's the preferred term? Yes, the hospital, because that's exactly what it was. It was the United States Public Health Service Hospital when I got there. It had other names going back to 1894, but that is the official designation of it, and I still call it the hospital. Okay, great. So you arrived at the Carville Hospital, but I think when people hear that, they're going to picture a very different place than Carville actually was, because they certainly had the hospital, but this was an entire community with all kinds of different places that were part of this. I believe you said 350-acre location. Is that right? So could you, yeah, would you tell us about the different facilities that you found once you were able to kind of move about freely in this community? Well, the, the facility itself it's very isolated, like I mentioned before, uh, you know, high cyclone fence and surrounded by swamps and alligators. So there was really no escape. And uh, one rode in and one rode out. They also had a jail within the facility because if someone were to break the law, the law enforcement in the parish or county at the, uh, in Louisiana refused to accept individuals from the hospital. So they had to be incarcerated within the facility. But there was also something else uh, that, you know, it, it, it had two communities within one because it had the staff side. They had many staff who lived on the grounds, uh, especially the doctors. And then you had the, the patients who lived on the other side. And there was a road right down the middle, and there was an imaginary line in the middle 
you would not cross that line. So you were isolated already in the community and isolated even more within the, the complex itself. So um, the facility was designed to be self-sufficient. It has, it still has uh, its own water plant. It has its own electric plant, its own churches, two churches, a Catholic chapel and a Baptist chapel. But at the same time, those long hallways, uh, there was two miles uh, altogether, created an image of isolation and and um, loneliness. All I remember when I arrived is I was taken to the ambulance uh, um, area and taken out. Uh, and so all I could see was the ceiling because it was in the middle of the night and I could see cobwebs or spider webs or cockroaches in the ceiling. And it was very damp, but it was still cold, very cold, but damp, a lot of humidity in Louisiana. And my initial impression was that, you know, I'm going to go to a furnace or a a brick house, uh, and that's where I'm going to stay. But I quickly found out that the infirmary room is about 10 by 10 or maybe even smaller didn't have a private bath. It was a communal bath. And the the nurses were all nuns. So the nun who first received me was able to come over and basically kiss me on the forehead after my parents left to to go to Baton Rouge because they were not allowed to stay there overnight. And she said, you're going to be okay, honey. So that was the first ray of hope that I had experienced in a long, long time. It was a very um, lonely time being there because uh, you were in the infirmary and I could not imagine what the rest of the facility looked like. And so I was in the infirmary for close to a year and I was able to go out uh, in hand-propelled wheelchairs uh, eventually, and I started to see the facility, and I found out that they were uh, individuals from all over the world. A lot of languages were being spoken. I got to meet patients gradually, and I found out that I was the youngest one there. I also found out that they had a school. They had a publication called The Star, of which I'm now the managing editor of. They also had a recreation hall, which uh, really gave me an opportunity to go and and see movies, a big theater. So they try to make it as viable as possible by having everything in there without having to leave. But the thing is that as soon as the sun went down, there was quiet. Everybody uh, went into their individual rooms and uh, there was nothing except the footsteps of the guards as they came around. But I was intrigued by the fact that uh, the disease affects twice as many men as it does women, that uh, there were a lot of individuals who basically encouraged me to uh, not lose hope, but at the same time, they would tell me privately because they met Magdalena, my wife, my girlfriend, they encouraged me to 
not let her suffer, to not stay with me, because they felt that I needed to marry someone with a disease. Of course, everything going back to the Bible in Leviticus, because they themselves had basically gone through that because their families abandoned them and in some cases declared dead or, or divorced. So there was a lot of emotional pain that they were sharing with me by telling me those things. They didn't want me to go through the same kind of pain. But Magdalena is very strong. She stuck it out with me. We wrote letters, uh, I think something like 5,000 letters uh, to each other while I was uh, institutionalized. But I also found out that there was a lot of individuals there who were strong advocates, who worked with the director of the hospital to make sure that changes did occur, that we were seen as human beings. But when the hospital gives you everything you need, uh, not only food, but lodging, even clothing, uh, there's a tendency of becoming dependent on what is there because of the stigma, fear of going out and being, quote-unquote, discovered. But I also uh, found out that the beauty of the place and the history of many people who have gone through uh, such unique experiences. Uh, some of my best friends were two brothers who were of uh, Japanese ancestry, and they went through the process of the World War II being sent to a camp, losing all their homes, all their belongings, and being isolated, and then spending five years uh, in camps, and then after that being diagnosed with disease and then being isolated some more at Carville. And they still felt that life was fair to them. They were alive. Mm -hmm. So I learned from them. Uh, I, I learned not to indulge in self-pityness and to be strong and to be an advocate and to speak up. So, yes, it was uh, very lonely being away from my family. But uh, I still grew up to be a man and I grew up to learn how to appreciate and, and love Magdalena because she was so strong, and even though she went against her mother's wishes, she also created a friendship with many of the patients that were there, because she did not show fear. She would uh, shake hands, she would embrace, uh, she would uh, acknowledge their existence. And therefore, the initial idea of you know, urging me to marry someone with a disease changed. And they said, you should marry her. <laughs> so she created a, um, a different mindset of people. And I, uh, I saw all of that. So I'm very grateful to have had her in my life. It really is one of the most romantic stories I've ever read, I think. I was very emotional reading your story. And what a what an incredible woman to be willing to see all of this through with you. And I mean, I can see why, because throughout the book, you're just so positive and you found so much light, even though you were in so much fear. And that's just something that I so took away from your book. And I'm trying to remember in my own life for sure. 
So, okay. In terms of the people that you met that that were inspiring to you and that helped you through, I think one of the stories I really loved was when you spent time with what you call the Super 23s. Would you tell our listeners that story? Well, the, I was in uh, what was called House 23. All the, it was a two-story building. There were 10 rooms on each floor in communal bath. And therefore, the, the gentlemen that were all there were all older than me. And they, they were always looking out for me because uh, they would go when they arrived and they were very young. And they were clueless about the facility and the unwritten rules and the, the norms that we were supposed to follow. They, so they looked out for me. They um, had a uh, what they called a ponderosa, right? Uh, on the other side of the levee, they were able to dig a hole under the fence. And it was a way of escaping from the monotony of, of the facility. So they invited me to be part of that 23, with the House of 23. And I would go over there and they would go raccoon hunting, coon hunting, as they called it. And they would barbecue and they would tell stories and they would smoke marijuana. They felt that the smoke from the marijuana would cure everything. But they embraced me and and they would tell me their stories of their lives. And I felt that I really belonged. And there was one time in particular when... I was urged to be able to participate in the ritual of smoking some marijuana. And it was at night and there was a big fire. And then all of a sudden, I see police red lights on top of the levee. A car was coming up, a state trooper. And I was scared. I didn't know what to do. I started to to run. But I said, if I run, I'm going to end up falling into the Mississippi and I can't run back up to the levee, I get caught. And before I knew it, the state trooper just came by and started greeting everybody. He knew everyone. So he was a, a person from the outside who in essence uh, understood the need to be able to share stories. And the state trooper said, just relax, you know, you'll be okay. So they continue to guide me there was a time when I was so despondent, so depressed, that I contemplated committing suicide. And uh, they all seemed to know that that was the case. So they all took turns uh, watching, insisting that my door stay open. And they stayed up, alternated staying up uh, so that I would be able to wake up the next morning. And they, unfortunately, there were, you know, a number of cases of suicide that I did see uh, when people felt uh, so hopeless and helpless that uh, their families had abandoned them. And then they felt that there was no future for them there at the, at the hospital and nothing to look forward to if they were to ever leave. So I'm glad that they, um, they combined to, to help me through all of these uh, dark nights, um, but at the same time, they enlightened my life. And I'll be forever grateful to those men. 
There is so much love in your book and so much care between people. So you experienced this at the hospital. You, you found this community. You're sort of settling in. And then you end up getting into Louisiana State University and you begin attending school in person. Did people know about your diagnosis when you started? And, and what was it like when you left Carville and started to actually drive every day back and forth to LSU? And what was the reaction of the community? Well, to begin with, it took a, a big effort from the hospital social worker to persuade the director of the hospital and the uh, the president and chancellors of LSU to allow me to even uh, be considered as as a as a student. And when I started going to school, it was very frightening because. I was told by not only my fellow patients, but uh, staff as well, be careful because you're going to be rejected and you might even be harmed if they find out what you have. So I kept to myself for a long time and uh, I, I was taking a medication, clofacimine, which turned my complexion dark uh, black. And being in Louisiana in the late 60s and going to university with a sea of white faces, I kind of stood out, even though I didn't want to be seen. So people would refer to me by the N-word. And then one of my classmates ended up being the Grand Dragon of the KKK. So he himself also would uh, have an entourage and follow me around, calling me all kind of names, uh, especially using the N-word. And uh, I learned how to take care of myself um, walking in the shoes of a black person. You get so angry, you want to just turn around and, and start fighting, but you know that you're going to lose. So why lose your life over something like that? So you, I learned to be able to suppress uh, that anger and continue with my education. I eventually uh, was in a, in a class where one of the professors, it was a sociology professor, was referring to the hospital as a social problem and those that were there as a social problem. And I had the courage to get up and, and tell them that uh, he was wrong. There were, we were not social problems. So when he confronted me and asked me how I thought I knew more than him, I told him it's because I had the disease. And there was complete silence. Uh, the, I remember sitting between two very tall blonde girls and I could see their seats moving away from me. But uh, gradually I, I started to become an advocate at school. And my senior year, I even ran for president of sociology club, and I actually won. So I would arrange once a year for a field trip to go to the hospital and educate my fellow students. Most of them were younger than I was to learn about the disease. And it was only 20 miles away, but it could have been 2,000 miles away. They had no clue that such a place existed. More. After this. Hey, podcast listener. 
Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for season nine. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today. And now, back to the show. So while you were at school, there was that teacher you mentioned, and then there was also this moment where you had given an interview to the star, to the newspaper that was produced out of Carville. And then that interview was actually reprinted in a national tabloid, and that led to some incidents at your school. Would you talk about that? It was it was horrible. It was... Uh... Yes, a, a tabloid, and I'll tell you, it was a National Enquirer. And the story was distorted in many ways, uh, talking about a person with the L word being a student at LSU, and it became national news. I refused to participate in, in interviews for a long time after that, but I didn't even participate in the interview. They just reprinted the story and, and recreated it in, in their own way. And it affected the student body. But uh, for a while there, it was uh, a lot of uh, rumors flying around throughout the university of someone who had the disease and how people might get sick. But that tabloid, well, it, it caused a lot of damage. It also created an opportunity for me to be able to educate not only some of my fellow students, but some of the professors as well. So every now and then when a negative story comes out, it gives me an opportunity to be able to educate, kind of like what is happening right now with you seeing that story in, um, in Florida and you reaching out to me in, in a way that you think it's appropriate to, to educate the community. I, lo I love the title of, of your podcast. So it's really very appropriate. So you can see that both you and I are in the same category of advocates, even though we don't hear people calling ourselves as advocates, but we are. Well, I'm, I'm honored to have you bestow me with that title. So thank you. And I do think at, at the heart, we are trying to do something very similar. So while you're going to school, you're still at Carville. You are still in touch with your girlfriend, Magdalena. You're still in touch with your family. A lot of people didn't have that support, but you seem to have pretty consistent support from your family. And it seems like that really helped you get through when other people just did not have that kind of relationship anymore. Did you find that a lot of people had totally lost touch with their family? Or is that more of a myth that we think of when we think of people with leprosy, that everybody abandons them and no one will speak to them anymore? Well, not, not everybody was abandoned, but the large majority of them were. And I was just one of the lucky ones. I I uh, was able to basically continue my education because of the love and support of so many people, not just Magdalena, but uh, people at the hospital. So that's why I say I've, I've been touched by so many 
and I just see myself as a very special person that uh, even though I have this label, but I saw my, my mother suffer so much thinking that uh, God was punishing her for for her alleged sins. And um, I thought my mother was angelic. There was no way that she could have committed sins. But yes, she felt like that up until uh, right before she died when I was able to tell her that I, I heard directly from Pope John Paul who says that uh, persons with leprosy were her, his brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. And when I told her that, that she was experiencing Alzheimer's, she became alive and um, and cried, and she said, uh, now I can die with a clean soul. So there's so many things that have happened in my, my 75 years, and I just cannot find enough words to to say how, how grateful I am and how lucky and how special I feel because of uh, all that love that I received and and the support from uh, so many. That moment in the book uh, where you're able to finally convey to your mom and get her to understand that she's not being punished and that, that that's just a story, I think was maybe the most poignant moment of the book for me. So after you spent all this time at Carville, you've graduated from LSU, and finally the day comes when you get to be discharged, and you are heading back home, and you're heading back to your relationship and to your family. Will you tell me about what it was like when you went home and what happened with Magdalena? I think we all want to know. Oh, well, the going back uh, to visit, because I, I never relocated entirely back to Laredo, but I did go back to visit. There was uh, always a, a form of celebration, but uh, Magdalena and I were getting married, and her mother still objected to a relationship. But as we were getting ready to walk up the altar, uh, her mother finally came over and told me that she was going to endorse and grant permission for Magdalena to marry me, even though it was already done deal. But that in itself broke the cycle of ignorance that was present within, you know, very close to my own life. So this cycle of, of ignorance needs to continue to be broken. But sometimes it takes uh, a little bit longer than than others to do that. It, it was very volcanic uh, at the end when you know we we were married and it was like a big explosion, and it was like um, we were able to see the light, everything that had happened to to us and how we had been touched, and we wanted to continue looking at that lava and that explosion to continue to touch people uh, and but not hurt them uh, just be able to for them to be able to see the beauty of that lava that light and uh, radiating uh, you know the, the truth about Henson's disease and I think that I can tell you at least from my point of view you both have certainly done that so you were discharged but 
Many, many people were not. And many people stayed there for decades of their lives. Many people died there. But eventually, Carville closed down and that affected the people who were still there. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened, why Carville closed down and the consequences of that? The, the, it was a federal hospital from 1921 until 1999. So the federal government kept thinking that uh, there was enough research, there was enough medication that uh, was available to be able to stop the growth of the bacilli. And there was enough resources to be able to provide uh, surgical services for those who had disabilities and then clinics were being opened up throughout the U.S. Uh, there are quite a few clinics now that uh, see people on an outpatient basis. I, for one, took the approach that people had been there since they were little kids, and now they were older than my parents, and they had nowhere to go. Why is it that they were being asked to leave when they had to go there involuntarily. So at the time, President Clinton signed an executive order to grant uh, those who left a stipend for the rest of their lives, provided that they left and they didn't come back. But then many felt that they couldn't leave. They needed to stay. They had nowhere to go. And uh, it was a two-edged sword. I saw very many people who felt that uh, the stipend would open doors for them to go back to their families. And for some, it did. But the thing is that they did not know how to drive. They did not know how to pay bills. They did not know about rent. They did not know about uh, grocery shopping. They did not know about the basic things that one does when they live out in the community. And they did not know how to make friends because the friends were all at Carville. So within 12 months after people left with the stipends, uh, people started dying. And many allegedly were dying of uh, natural causes. I felt that they were dying of a broken heart. And for those who, who did manage to stay, they, one uh, who stayed uh, died just the last six months ago. And as, as they got older, they were able to open up a nursing home of sorts in Baton Rouge, and that's where they spent the rest of their lives. I did not want to spend the rest of my life at Carville, but I, I could see that some really had no place to go. And they, uh, the Carville was their home. So even after dying, they wanted to be buried there. There's a, a cemetery, beautiful cemetery under the pecan trees that is very reminiscent of a, a mini Arlington National Cemetery. But I um, fought aggressively to no avail. I didn't have the political base to be able to overcome that. Plus, uh, James Carville, who had been uh, President Clinton's um, campaign manager, 
who was from the small town of Carville. That's what, um, you know, Carville was named after the, 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 his family. He, he's the one who advocated for the stipend because he felt also that it was no longer useful as a community. So they stopped accepting patients in 1999. And uh, those who did not take the stipend continued to live there. And then uh, the, the facility was returned back to the state of Louisiana. And now it is considered a um, uh, the headquarters for the Louisiana National Guard. And because it is so isolated, it, it is used as a training center for the FBI, the CIA, the Secret Service. It's uh, isolated. But the Mississippi River is still very much a part of, of that, and the levees are there. So it is my understanding that when ships uh, go by, especially passenger ships, uh, that they blow the horn to acknowledge uh, the presence of those who decided to stay and are buried in the back. Because it used to be with the watchtower that uh, ships would actually blow the horn, realizing that it was uh, a special hospital. And it's the only part of the, the Mississippi River that you know goes over 2,000 miles where the, the river meanders north and it actually flows north right there by Carville and then starts flowing south again. So it has a lot of symbolism. That yeah. place is never going to die. That is a, not what I think anyone would have expected Carville to turn into either. Um, the last question I really have for you, and this is kind of a bigger question, is that after your time at Carville, you obviously did a ton of advocacy work all around the world on behalf of people with Hansen's disease to educate and to provide services. And in general, your degree, I believe, and, and the work that you did was social work. And obviously living at Carville, you met all different kinds of people. You experienced the pain of stigma. So I'm, I'm hoping that you would Give us a little bit of your wisdom and what you've learned about what you think the best way to change people's views are. Like, you know, we are hearing about this stuff in Florida and immediately it made me concerned for the people who actually have been diagnosed with Hansen's disease that this is what they're hearing, right? They're hearing all these jokes and they're hearing people be afraid of them. What would you tell our listeners is your philosophy about helping people change their prejudiced views? Well, I learned when I was at LSU, and I mentioned it earlier, that when I was being followed by members of the KKK, that I was so angry I wanted to confront. But instead of confrontation, I decided to run for the presidency of the sociology club, and I was able to influence my fellow students some of them who are actually members of the KKK and go with me to the hospital and learned about proper terminology. So what I do now when uh, I'm confronted or I see people being confronted with these uh, jokes uh, and stigma enticing terminology, that instead of a confrontation is to be able to 
you know, see the person face to face and explain to them how painful stigma is. It's very harmful and hateful. And remember that uh, the definition of stigma is an act of labeling, rejection, or unexplained fear of a person. And why is it that uh, people are afraid of it is because they do not know. Not because they're stupid or because they're ignorant, it's because people do not know. They have not heard the same thing. So at work, when some of my fellow workers, nurses and others, uh, you know, initially heard, they would, you can actually see them taking a step back and using the L word and I very calmly move towards them and I tell them that the L word is not the proper thing. So yes, there's going to be a lot of pain emotional and physical pain that uh, persons who are being diagnosed in Florida, they're going to experience all that stigma. But what I'm trying to do for my end is to try to educate as many as possible so that ultimately others will be impacted. Like uh, lining up a a row of dominoes, you hit one and then it completely continues to to touch the other, touch the other, they fall, they fall, they fall. So as I see it is that you touch someone and as the fall occurs, then the stigma falls uh, away uh, as well. So that's my philosophy of uh, how to attack uh, stigma nowadays. Uh, Instead of being angry and confrontational and doing, you know, things that people will remember you because of the anger, not because of the compassion or passion that you may have for a particular topic. Well, Jose, I just want to say thank you so much for talking to us today. And I'm really hoping and I'm definitely believing that we can start a little bit of that domino process right now with at least our listeners. So absolutely honored you came on and just thank you so much for everything that you've done and continue to do. Well, thank you for inviting me, and I hope that uh, your listeners will be able to share with you what they have learned or other questions that they might have, and uh, I'll gladly be able to respond to them if they have specific questions. I told you at the beginning I'm an open book because I know that my mother would have wanted me to be strong and be able to continue moving on with uh, my life. So this particular session, this particular podcast is part of uh, my living. Well, I'm so glad to hear that. And uh, I'll make sure that our listeners know where to find you in case they have more questions. Thanks again, Jose. Thanks. This was American Hysteria. If you have any questions for Jose, you can find his email in our show notes, as well as a link to where you can donate to IDEA to help end the stigmas of Hansen's disease. And please consider getting a copy of his book, Squint, My Journey with Leprosy. If you want to get more of our show, you can head to patreon.com slash American Hysteria, where you'll get ad-free early episodes, as well as bonus content like Hysteria Home Companion, the extra talk show that producer Miranda and I make, where we share stories with you that were cut from the episodes. That's patreon.com slash American Hysteria. You can follow us on Instagram at American Hysteria Podcast. And if you have a second, please leave us a review on the app of your choice. 
This episode has sound designed by Clear Combo Studios and was edited and produced by Miranda Zickler. And I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith. I hope you have a great week. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.